Welcome to episode six of the Strongest Steel podcast. Uh, I will start by acknowledging that here in the District 3 office, we are on the traditional unceded and stolen territories of Coast Salish peoples, uh, specifically the Musqueam, uh, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And uh, we need to, in all of our work as individuals and collectively as a union, learn about our colonial history here in Canada, uh, understand what reconciliation means, and act as individuals and collectively in our organization um, to advance reconciliation with uh, Indigenous people in our country. Uh, I'm Scott Lenny. I'm the director of District 3 and the host of the Strongest Steel podcast. Um, So today we're going to um, I hit the microphone. Um, today we're going to uh, talk about uh, this month, which is Black History Month, and uh, we have a couple guests who here, uh, Mike and uh, Rhea, who uh, were on a, a trip to South Africa with the Steelworker Humanity Fund uh, as part of the the big unions uh, or the National Union in Canada's anti-racism committee work, uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that and. Uh, um, we also have uh, a very special guest online with us, uh, our uh, vice president of our international union, Roxanne Brown, uh, which I'm, I'm super excited to have on our podcast. This, you, you're um, our most esteemed, well, maybe not. We, we Our first ever guest in the oh. episode one <laughs> well, became, uh, right after he was on our podcast, Wab Canoe became the premier of the province of Manitoba. So um, that's a pretty esteemed guest, but you're you're right up there. You're right up there. You're right up there. Most esteemed guests, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to uh, let, uh, starting with uh, Roxanne, maybe let everybody introduce themselves first, and then we'll get into it. Sure. Thank you, Scott. And it's, it's so great to to be here with with everyone and Mike and Rich. I'm very excited about this. So thanks for the invitation. I'm Roxanne Brown. I'm international vice president at large for the United Steelworkers. I proudly, proudly serving that role. Thank you, Rox. Uh, Mike. Yeah, I'm Mike Dura. I'm assistant to the director, Scott Lunny for District 3. And um, we're humbled to be in such esteemed company as Roxanne Brown. <laughs> and uh, I'm Rhea Aurora. I am a local 2009 member through my work at the BC Federation of Labor. I'm the director of organizing and campaigns and a member of the USW National Anti-Racism Committee. Awesome. So, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe um, we can just start and uh, talk about uh, what it, it's Black History Month. So, I don't know, Roxanne, if you want to just say a bit about that and a bit about, you know, why that's important to to us as steelworkers and, you know, what we what kind of role we play in that. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think since our last convention, and it actually wasn't our our first convention with that theme, but our last convention uh, about the steelworkers being everybody's union, I think was just really timely. And I think just timely for the moment that we're in right now, where there's so much conversation about, um, you know, how we show up in the world as, as individuals, but certainly in terms of organizations and unions, how we show up in the world and the steelworkers show up with so many different faces, you know, um, when I enter, I'm, I'm here in Washington, D.C., when I enter a lot of rooms as the steelworkers, they, they, they're like, what? There are black women steelworkers? You know, so it, we, we show up in so many different faces, so many different industries, so many different cultural backgrounds. And it's important that we acknowledge our 
our differences and who we are. And Black History Month is a big way that we do that. And we acknowledge, um, you know, one core segment of people that make this union uh, so great and the history of, of that people across our two countries and um, how interconnected it is, right? Um, but, but also different and how the experiences are different. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is it's an important reminder of where we're coming from as a people, um, the, the, the struggles, the successes, the journey, but also where we're still going, right? Because there's still so much work to do. Um, and so it's, I, I'm, I'm just excited um, that, that, that you all are, are doing this and, and talking about this on the podcast this month. That's great. Thank, thanks so much for that. And yeah, I, I always think it's interesting that, you know, we, uh, like we, we hearken back to the, and I know you do this a lot, Roxanne, when you speak and I do it all the time, talk about the history of our union and, but like, I think what's, you know, what we always have to remember, we celebrate our history, but we also recognize the failures in our history and how we've, how we've improved. Right. You know, when we talked about everybody's union, you know, 80 years ago, it really wasn't everybody's union and we're still not quite there, but we're, we're making a lot of progress and, uh, you know, and it, it is great to see that. And, uh, and it's good to be able to connect it to the evolution of our union, not just the evolution of our, you know, the world and society. Like we're, we're always trying to be better as a union. So I think that's. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, I don't know, you, you do chime in. Do you have anything to say about what Roxanne said? <laughs> no, I think it's very important that we, you know, recognize Black History Month, not only in North America, but all around the world. You know, there's a history of colonialism, slavery, and everything that followed that. And we learned a lot of that in Africa and, and in the U.S. through civil rights. And we can't let future generations forget that and these these months where we recognize black history or we recognize indigenous rights it's about keeping that those bringing bringing those things to the forefront making sure that people never forget and so history doesn't repeat itself and we build from that and we grow our societies and right those wrongs of the past right yeah and even you know as you were talking Roxanne I was thinking about it like it's it's one thing to um, spread awareness so that people understand the historical context, but I think what it does is it empowers youth and it empowers people that are currently in um, the union or outside of it, you know, regardless, whatever institution they're interacting with, it gives them an opportunity to think about the type of work and commitment and drive and unity that came from with their within their community, allowing them to sort of feel that pride that sometimes gets lost when you're being consistently oppressed day to day. Um, and I think that's a really important reminder as a Punjabi woman myself, that's something that is really important to me. Um, and yeah, Scott, as you said, you know, everybody's union means it depends. How do you define everybody? And I think what we're doing collectively is we're starting to define it rather than let it be defined for us, you know? That's right. Yeah, I, 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 go ahead, Scott. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, Rhea, that, that, that resonates deeply, um, especially as a mom, right? Because, because you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a continuum. It's not you only look at the history. It really is a continuum and how we're continuing to grow. 
um, and not be stagnant. You know, when I think about our, our union and um, just the future, you know, want us to, to be, you know, kind of the, the one of the remaining ones. And it's because we've done the right things. We've had the right conversations. Um, we've put the work in, had the difficult conversations uh, to, to grow us in all the places that we need to grow. And this is a this is a really important place where it's hopefully we're going to be a time in our union where I'm not an anomaly anymore. It's the only black woman on the executive board, but Absolutely. we'll have a Punjabi woman in our executive <laughs> board, right? Um, an Asian yeah. woman, you know, and, yeah. and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it grows, right? Yeah. Um, so that yeah. is the goal. I love what you said. It is a continuum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, Rhea, do you want to just uh, maybe let us know a little bit about the work that we did as a national union on the anti-racism, what was the anti-racism working group, and I think is now the anti-racism committee. Committee, yeah. Um, maybe just for some context. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we kicked it off. I think I got appointed in 2021, and that was our first year, uh, and it was the National Anti-Racism Working Group. And we were kind of really starting from scratch in the sense that we were going to think about what type of work we wanted to do. We wanted to figure out what our mandate was. Um, and obviously, we were provided one by the national um a union which was to identify areas and gaps that currently exist. And if there are policies that are um, anti-racist, anti-oppressionist, what are they and are they working? Uh, and so we took a look at what was happening within the union and we identified gaps. And one of the major ones is education, of course, um, and then awareness within the larger rank and file. And, uh, and so we had a policy um, conference that was coming up in 2023. So ahead of that, um, the National Anti-Racism Committee, or I should say working group members, met up in Toronto. Um, we talked about what we wanted to do. And so we had, I think we were given the opening plenary of the National Policy Conference, which allowed us to touch base on racism itself. And so we talked a bit about the work we wanted to do, what we were mandated, um, and then we had a few resolutions that we had also proposed, one of them making the National Anti-Racism uh, Working Group an actual committee. And so and then education being part and parcel of, of that as well. And so that was a really important policy conference because uh, I was one of the people that um, uh, went through a, an exercise and the exercise was a sentence to determine feelings of the rank and file when they heard that sentence. And that sentence had to do with um, allyship is when white people support racialized people. It was something like that. And very gentle, right? Like we were gentle. We didn't dig in too deep, but we wanted to scratch the surface and see where people were at. And we had three test groups. One was the people that felt positive emotions. And there was out of the thousand people, six people raised their hands. Then we asked for the people who had negative emotions. And again, around six or seven people raised their hands. But what we wanted to really focus on was the people that didn't raise their hands. That was also a group. That was the, um, uh, the not engaged group. And so we wanted to point out the fact that even that conversation, as light as it was, even from a podium with a thousand USW members sitting beside each other, was still, there was a level of uh, discomfort with it, even discussing it. And so that kind of set the stage for us to start to think about the practice of, and we knew we were going to South Africa. This was planned well in advance. And so uh, we knew that part of 
what we were going to do with our work was to disseminate what we learned in South Africa and the symmetry between uh, this country and and South Africa and really countries everywhere uh, when we think about racist policies uh, and the impact that they have on uh, Black, Indigenous, and, and people of color. It's awesome. I don't know. Like, Roxanne, is how, like, how does that relate? Like, you know, you mostly do U.S. stuff. So how does that relate to what we do in the U.S. around um, racism, anti-racism work? You know, I and I, I was at the policy conference, um, as, as you know, and I was really disappointed that I that I missed this portion of it because I arrived after after this plenary. But I heard a lot of the discussion about it. Um and I will say, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You can say whatever you um, want. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really admire about um, our brothers and sisters in Canada is that um, you do have a lot of the difficult conversations and that you create space um, for those difficult conversations. Um, and I was actually really surprised um, that that was that 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 kind of reaction um, happened at the policy conference. You know, I, I actually expected it to be a little bit different, um, more positive feelings, um, just just a bit, just a bit more. I was just I was just surprised um, because you guys do make it a point to have those difficult conversations. In the U.S., it's so charged, right? Um, and we're in an environment where. Um, you know, 2016 happened with, you know, with Agent Orange and everything, and he became president um, and um, just really had a diffuse effect across the United States um, and made the issue of race so charged and allowed the racists to really kind of come out of the woodworks and be even more racist Um and then the summer of 2020 happened, right? Um, which, which shifted the narrative a bit on race and people became more comfortable talking about it in the United States. Um, but it's still challenging. You know, I think if you say, um, you know, white privilege to some people, it, that they're, their hankles get, what, what, do you, what, what do you mean? Right. I have yeah. white, white, white privilege. Um, yeah. The fragility you know, is real. The fragility is real. Um, and I, and I think people get very defensive because, you know, going back to your question about just how you pose it about allyship, right? Because I think a lot of um, people feel that they are allies, right? To, to communities of color and have an idea of what that allyship looks like and, and, and means for them, but may not, may not fully understand what that is. And so um, it's just made for a very interesting environment uh, about race and a little cynicism, if I, if I can be honest, you know, because after the summer of 2020, you know, every company or nonprofit organization made it a point to put, to appoint black people on their boards, <laughs> right? Um, or have, you know, black CEOs or just black representation and, and leadership. Um, and, and that's also kind of human nature where people will overcorrect rather than actually looking at the root cause of the thing. And so I think from my perspective, that's still the work. You know, words are pretty, 
nice words on paper and nice words on paper, but you can burn that shit. That was kind of, ooh, I can't curse. Sorry, it's a podcast. Yeah, you can, curse. You can, we, we you can burn that paper. <laughs> <laughs> you can burn that paper and then it's nothing, right? Those words disappear. But what is the work? And that work can only happen when you make bold steps like you did um, at the policy conference by leading with that conversation and really having people think about it and not making it one conversation. But again, going back to the first part of this conversation, it's a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the only way that we do the work and that we we pull other people to the table, to, to really to really have the conversation in a real way. You know, people, you know, people will say, oh, I would never sit down at a table and, and, and talk to, you know, a Republican here in the United States or, or you know, I know the politics in Canada, the conservatives and the liberals and the NDP and, you know, coming together and having these conversations is so important or else we just don't move the ball forward. And um, here I worry. I, I really worry that we're not really having those deep conversations to truly drive change. And, you know, I think a, a real example of that is Juneteenth. And this is, I'll just, you know, end with, with this Juneteenth, which is kind of an extension of an education on black history, mm-hmm. right, uh, in the United States. And there's been, you know, it's a, it's a national holiday now, but man, the conversation about why that's necessary um, and why black people, why do we need another black holiday? (laughs) Right. Um, And people not really understanding um, just, just uh, the dynamics and the struggles and the challenges that have been faced by, um, by communities of color. It's it's just still very live. So um, that's all to say that I just, I commend our brothers and sisters in Canada because I, I think as hard as it is, you do the work. We do the work here in the United States too, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Yeah, Absolutely. For sure. And I, I think, you know, one of the things Rhea said and, and you were picking up on, Roxanne, is that, you know, there there's all like there's not a lot of people, well, in my world that'll stand up and say, Oh, I'm racist or I'm homophobic right. or whatever. But there's a lot of people who don't say anything, particularly in our membership. They, they say, mm-hmm. Brett and I were actually having this, I'm pointing to Brett, but you're like, Brett's over there. But anyway, <laughs> um, um, Brett and I were having this discussion this morning about something else. There's a lot of people that don't say anything. And if you, if you just take that as like acceptance or, you know, that they're, you know, on the right side or moving in the right direction, we're really not, we're really not doing what we should be doing in terms of educating and engaging folks. Like we really have to have those conversations with people to, to draw out, make them comfortable to tell us what they're really feeling and then, and then, then do the work to, to bring them along. Right. And, but just cause a lot of people will shut up or they'll say what they think you want to hear and they won't say what they really mean. And, and so we got to, you know, a con- convention conversation is good, but we got to do more more, have more of those conversations. We have, you know, we're in, we're in, uh, you know, Western Northern Canada, like it, it be under no illusions that we don't have members that are, uh, not necessarily very progressive on, on some, uh, <laughs> on, on some issues, but they don't necessarily speak up about that at union events or in the union context. And we have to not take that as everything's okay. We have to take that as an invitation to go deeper and have more discussions with folks about, important issues or else, or else we're really missing on those folks. I mean, there's no secret. The 
I think this is true in the States. We've got a lot of members that are like in our world, Pierre Polyev, uh, we have a different name for him, but I won't say it, but we're probably of <laughs> conservatives right now that are in our membership and they are, and that, that is this, you know, they're scared of, you know, uh, of, you know, what people on the right who, who do speak up on that, that, that scares them into being, you know, aligned with Polyev rather than being aligned with, you know, other folks who are, who have a, a better vision for where we're going to go as a country, and, you know? And so anyway, I just, Whatever I'm babbling now, so no, it makes move, sense. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. Let's let's move on to the the South. A I think you went to South Africa at a different time, Roxanne. So I I did. I went for the Agoa form, and you know what? This is actually from South Africa. So we're 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 uh, kind of in the South Africa theme today. <laughs> we're synchronized. Look at that. Yeah. So I, I wanted to hear from uh, folks to hear from Mike and and Rhea about the the Humanity Fund trip that they just took and and what it was all about and what they learned there, but. Roxanne, chime in because you've obviously got some experience with that. I have none, so I will kind of. Hopefully, you can just go with this, and <laughs> and so, I can learn. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give a bit of background. As a lot of our members know, what our humanity fund does in Canada. You know, last year we donated two hundred and fifty thousand dollars into food banks across the country. But that's not just what we do. We don't just help as a charity here in disasters and and food banks. We have global partnerships, and one of those global partners is the International Research and Information Group in South Africa. They're a labor organization, a labor service organization dedicated to research, education, training, and production of popular materials and literature for workers, unions, and social movements. They're based in Cape Town, and they're founded in 1983. So the um, Humanity Fund has had a long relationship, what we call one of our global partnerships with, with ILRIG, the International Labor Research and Information Group, as we refer to them as ILRIG. And the current project was aimed at seven um, poor people's initiatives and, and organizations involved in campaigning for um, human rights, um, access to housing, water, electricity, the basics that we take for granted. And um, ILRIG provides the research education, organizing platforms, and um, exchanges with the aim of strengthening the initiatives for their organizing and deepen the coordination effectiveness of their struggles. And um, a delegation was led by Guillaume Charbonneau, who's the SHF director and CNO staff. And a lot of credit goes to Kai Lai, who's from CNO staff as well, and he was the NAC co-coordinator of the National Anti-Racism Committee, recently retired, and, and Kai is from South Africa. He grew up there before he came to Canada, so he was a great person to sort of lead us and, and guide us, and um, yeah, he, he did a great job, and his planning was excellent, and, and Guillaume, both of them deserve a lot of credit. And the rest of our group consisted of st other staff from District 5, District 6, and myself and, and Ria. So... The objectives during the trip was um, to understand and take part in the work of the SHF international partners like ILRIG, develop an understanding of racism, anti-black racism in Canada by exploring common themes of political, economic apartheid and um, xenophobia in South Africa, and then explore strategies and methods for um, South African labor unions, community groups and progressive allies to apply to the USW, that apply to the USW in Canada. So there was various groups and organizations that we met with and um, during our trip. And, um, you know, 
the Elrig, one of the Elrig um, staff, Sean, was the one who first met us and sort of guided us on the early days. And, you know, he mentioned about the recent history of South Africa. And, and this was one of the things that really took me aback was that after all the struggle, after having great leaders like Nelson Mandela, the country has not moved forward. And that really shell-shocked me when I arrived there. He mentioned about the truth and reconciliation process that took place under Reverend De Desmond Tutu, where there was, you know, it was supposed to be for, to, just like the truth and reconciliation here, it was to find ways to heal the past. But there was a lot of shortcomings from that. Um, you know, he highlighted that there's been virtually no economic redistribution at the end of apartheid and or since and many south africans actually their economic situation is a lot worse now than it was under apartheid so i mean rio district six was one of the first places you went to and you know, you can yeah that. yeah absolutely so um you know ilrig took us on a series of tours we went to some um historic sites that uh really highlighted what was happening um in, in South Africa at the time, especially under apartheid. And so I'm just going to lift this up. 60,000 forced evictions. So basically, District 6 was an area of generally, uh, mostly uh, people, what they call colored there, which is uh, racialized or mixed folks of mixed her heritage. And then there was... Um, uh, folks from the black community. So it was really a melting pot of different cultures. And uh, there were 60,000 people that lived in District 6. And uh, the the state, uh, the colonial state, sent bulldozers and basically tore down people's homes and uh, forced them to move out. So if you were colored, uh, or what they reference as, as racialized and people of mixed heritage, you went to a place that was a little bit further out from the urban center. And then if you were from the black community, you went out even further. And so uh, the communities and neighborhoods were completely ripped apart from each other. Part of the, the important aspect that I think we need to focus on about the post-colonial impacts is that these people had built a social infrastructure with one another. So if someone didn't have enough money to pay for groceries, for example, they knew the grocer well in District 6. So they could say, I'll pay you in a few days when I'm, I'm able to. And that was okay. So people were able to get by. They had access to all the basic necessities, stores, doctors, whatever they needed, um, and entertainment. But being pushed out into what they call the wastelands, which was further away, um, they were not able to access these things that they once had close access to, even by geographical distance. So they had to then start walking miles to get milk and eggs. Uh, and then they weren't able to, um, and it cost money, or they had to take transportation where they didn't need to do that before, or arrange transportation. So whatever little amount they were working with then became more and more whittled down. And post-colonially, when you look at what's happened, is that all of these people were driven from their homes. They weren't driven to the same areas. And I think that's what's important to, to keep in mind. They were, by being separated from each other, not just from their home, but then where they were moved to, what ended up happening is that they completely isolated from one another, even family members, because they had a very racist test that they employed, which was putting a pencil in your hair to see if the pencil would slide through. Um, they had uh, another test where they would look at the hue of your skin. And so if you were a 
lighter skinned or darker skinned family member, that might actually mean you being splitting up. And so now you're isolated from one another, you're living in different areas where you don't know where, you know, your family members are at or how to reach them, or you can't afford to reach them really where they're at. And the government promised to provide the land back to these people. And many of them have been on a waiting list for so many years that they actually ended up passing away. And so they never got back to their home. Uh, and in the end, it's like you can see this continued impact. And, you know, uh, part of what Mike just mentioned earlier about, um, uh, you know, the, the impacts that you can see there. There's these shanty towns um, and, you know, they sprawl out and it's millions and millions of people without access to um, housing, electricity, uh, washrooms, like Mike mentioned. Uh, and, uh, you yeah. know, there's there's been some, I think, yeah. conversation with the government, but it hasn't gotten far enough. No, back when in 19, after 1996, when Nelson Mandela came into power, there was a promise to rebuild and even today when we went there, the land is still sitting barren. There's a few buildings left. There's a couple of buildings being put on there, but nothing has happened and people have passed away and that it's been over 60 years now since some people remember. I mean, in a nutshell, it was a thriving community like the communities we live in here and all of a sudden with a flash of a, a bill that was passed in the South African parliament at that time, a racist bill that was passed and by stroke of a pen, all these people were displaced and they lost their sense of community, their livelihoods, and their a lot of them their families as well. But on the um, some of the effects of that is like the um, camps we visited, which was Kalishta, was the which is a shanty town you can call it, or a, as they call them, the townships in South Africa. It's an area where you know people are living in um, informal settlements, sort of an occupation where they're taken over the land. And a lot of this happened during the COVID pandemic as well. People were forced out of their homes. And one of the organizations, um, I can't pronounce it because it's an African name, but the abbreviation was IYM. And we met with the activists from that community in the, in a church in the township. And um, they told us of the stories of, um, you know, how they've lost their jobs you know, they couldn't afford to pay rent anymore. They they just ended up taking over swaths of land and they never received the promised housing that they were supposed to Which the to government had promised that land to them, yeah. but that's not what happened. They didn't get their they didn't get that land, so they basically occupied it into these informal yeah. settlements. So this is a picture of the of the township and um like just an overview and that shows the kind of housing there is corrugated shacks and even the church we were in is it was just a larger corrugated building it's nothing like a church we would see here you know no flooring it's a dirt floor and um no insulation um you know no uh, air conditioning in the the hot african sun that kind of thing so iym is like one of the organizations which coordinates with elrig in their work and they set up like a democratic horizontal structure, you know, the, the affiliates are grouped in committees in the different occupations. And during COVID, actually, they gave them names that were like um, the different areas, like one was called pandemic, one area is called sanitizer, and one is called social, social distance. distance. So you're and from the social distance so neighborhood. So I live in the social distance hood, and she lives in the sanitizer. I'm in the pandemic hood, yeah. yeah. And so they explain like, you know, how the occupiers, like, they have no intention of moving out unless they're provided proper housing. And these these encampments or shanty towns are just growing and growing. And, you know, one of the um, 
stats that we were told there was that to house all of these people at the rate that the government is going, it would take two to three hundred years, and that's you know nobody nobody lives that long. It's it's going to be you know maybe your great great grandchildren will, will get housing, and and that's very sad. And um, the organization also provides like popular education to its membership on issues like the struggles and how helping people to connect to um, other broader struggles and and really empowering and educating people, which is the only tool they have, right? And then. Yeah, like one of the things that really I I think that I really liked about Ilrig is that they talked about other um, economic models and or I should even say um, uh, anti-capitalist models uh, that are more social, like democratic confederalism. Uh, If you think about the Kurdish independent state, um, they talk about the impacts of neoliberal capitalism. And, you know, there's a lot of symmetry when you think about what's happening in Canada as well as the states Um, and you know, by by discussing this as well as um, talking about areas where there has been success, it allows these um, workers, housing advocates, general activists to start thinking about kind of a bigger picture um, about what it is they actually want. And so Ilrig focuses on root causes and root issues and really uplifts them for people to connect with. And, and then the intention is to provide them with the skills and strategies that they need to then continue that organizing. Uh, in in a way that brings more people into their collective um, through education. So it's uh, it's such an amazing school. I think we can take a lot from it in terms of maybe even what Steel could do here in Canada, where they kind of have one school every year in Joburg and then one school in Cape Town each year, a political school which lasts four days. This is something we could potentially do. It's a model we could actually copy uh, that I think uh, would be really useful for us here as well as in the States. Mm. Another interesting place we visited, actually where we kind of started, was Community House, where Ulrich's office is based. And um, this is a building that during apartheid was a hub for progressive organizations and community groups, and it still is. It was actually bombed by the South African secret police or whatever they were, you know, the um, during, during apartheid. And there's a lot of history. There's murals all over the walls. And, I mean, if somebody's ever in Cape Town, I would go visit the place and it's it it is it shows you how much people suffered and the sacrifices of the activists and how hard it how how long it took them to get to get their independence but again like I said earlier you know the country is still not moved forward from that which is very sad but also I think it's a point of inspiration the community house has lasted for so many years and I think originally it was built for um, women who were going to work in the uh, urban center at the time it provided safe and secure housing for them so that's how community house was actually formed but then it was used for other social justice purposes throughout so you know I think the lesson there for, for me and especially within the murals was every time the state pushed the people pushed back and that was the area they pushed back from and that was really cool as an anchor point um, in really surrounded by industrial like mills and or warehouses where they were you know or textile places right like it was surrounded by it it was very interesting to see that because the working class solidarity was right there in your face surrounding this community house yeah another big issue there is for workers especially you farm workers, laborers, and we met with um, Kasawu, which is a commercial stevedoring agriculture and allied workers union. The unions there are not as structured and organized as we are here 
nor is a trade union movement, but they they represent mostly farm workers in the wine region just north of Cape Town. We went met with them on a Sunday, I think it was, and yeah, um, yeah. you know they described how employers have control over almost all aspects of their working lives on the farm, where they live. It's a situation not unlike a lot of temporary farm workers in Canada, but a lot of people are there for life, their lifers, but when they get to an age where they can't work any longer or physically they can't keep up with the physical demands of the work, they're actually just kicked off the farm and left on their own means to fend for themselves, and a lot of them end up homeless or in the shanty towns, and it's it's a very... um tough situation for them and there's a lot of issues like alcoholism and and a lot of social issues and then you know the government is not doing anything for them you know there's corruption there's so much um a lot of the owners of these farms are connected with the governments and that was one of the um things in every facet of the society there the police the government the government officials the municipal governments every there's a lot of corruption and that is sad to see in a country that fought so hard to get to where, get away from apartheid, fought for to bring make the country better for their people. And now there seems like it's gone backwards, and and the people are are really suffering. And there's a lot of political assassinations, even for union leaders or anybody who gets too vocal or gets into the hairs of the government. They all of a sudden are missing or assassinated, which is yeah. which was quite shocking. Yeah, and I mean, like here in the 1900s, we know about what union activism brought on for people, and we think about the 1907 riots in in Korea and Japantown, um, here in Vancouver. But um, I, I think you know what's what's really stuck out to us uh, was the symmetry between. Canada, as well as South Africa and and countries really everywhere. When you look at a capitalist system and you see, uh, we, we talk a lot about the symptoms of it and we talk a lot about Band-Aid fixes. But what we really have to start thinking through is if we're overhauling a system, what is that going to actually look like? And then what are the steps that we need to take that are concrete that will actually get us to where we need to go? Um, and so we've been thinking about that a lot. And um, part of what the National Anti-Racism Committee will be doing is disseminating a lot of these lessons um, through education that we'll be creating that will be available to um, all of the locals throughout the country. So this is going to be some some a crucial point for us to make sure that we get this message across to the rank and file as well, so we can get everyone collectively thinking about it um, as a us, uh, you know, as the uh, a group against the issue and not as you know divided amongst one another. Yeah, and then the the school which was the Ulrich political school we got to spend a couple of days there and um you know the participants there they're given the opportunity to discuss critical themes that are affecting them movement building and organizing through plenary sessions and working groups and we were able to um actually sit in their breakout rooms and participate yeah. uh, we, we stayed out of their sort of main focus stuff and we sat to the side but we listened in we sat in the groups we gave our inputs and we were all given an opportunity to um share our experiences with racism in Canada or in England where I grew up and every one of our delegation got a chance to speak and, and Rhea got to participate in a panel which discussed organizing a movement building and um, 
the school had groups, not it wasn't just um union groups, there were community groups, there were people who represent refugees, there were people who represent the farm workers, of course, and there was other community like organizations. Province workers as well, right? There was a ton. Yeah. And there is a big issue of xenophobia there because South Africa in re- in relation to other poorer African countries is still a better option and there's a lot of influx of refugees from Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. Nigeria, West Africa, war-torn countries which is, you know, something that's not avoidable. People are going to go to where there's where, where there's a better chance for them to live and, and and at least survive right in the in the context of all the wars and all the problems in the rest of Africa so there's a big xenophobia problem a lot of those people are discriminated against they're treated as second hand second class citizens and um they spoke of there was a group there that spoke of their experiences and then we had women's group and patriarchy is a big issue as well so <laughs> I think I'll let Rio speak more to that but yeah. a lot of the um a lot of the the women in the groups were not as vocal as the male participants. I mean, and, I, and that I, kind of, you know, that kind of hit a nerve with us because when we we were encourage them to speak up and that, but there seems to be a societal or systemic thing where they were kind of reluctant, right? I, I think you know. You know, Roxanne, you and I are women. We know what it's like to operate in male-dominated spaces, um, but. There was about 50 participants, I would say. And of the 50 participants, I think about 20 to 22, 23 were women. So it's not like it wasn't, uh, it it was pretty mixed. Uh, However, you know, there was a question brought up by one of the um, facilitators that was referencing, um, you know, why women's issues are important and uh, why uplifting women is important. And the only people that spoke to it was a group of about four or five men. Uh, (laughs) And all the women did not say a word. And so, you know, and I'm dying inside, Roxanne, but it's not my place. So I had to sort of sit back and wait. And, you know, I wanted to ask the basic a question which we often think about um, you know in our in our sort of professional spaces but in these community spaces it was like why didn't you speak up like what was holding you back you know what was it and they said that there just wasn't space created for them and uh, that if it was it was very performative and I think that you know that requires allyship too when you think about it from from a gender perspective. Um, but we have that same issue when we think about um, active allyship or co-conspiratorship. It's the, it's it's kind of a, a similar theme. Um, but that really stuck out to I think the entire NAC committee and and staff. We were a little bit taken aback by that because we thought there would be a lot more conversation and it was very clear that this was uh, a pretty common place for the women just not to speak at all. Yeah. And one of the other places we, we visited was um, Sissy Ghoul House, which is a hospital that's been converted into um, housing. It was actually an occupation. It was converted. It was a, it's an occupation. It's an occupation. The community <laughs> took it over. They've been living there. They've come to some sort of compromise in recent years with the council that they'll be promised to upgrade. But I wouldn't say it's the greatest building. It's not dilapidated, but it's better for people to live in. And that was that was that was one of the st- places where we had a great um interaction with young kids. And there was a store there where we gave the store the store inside the hospital where we gave the 
store keep a lot of a bunch of money and the kids could have free candy and they loved it and they were singing and dancing around us and it was a great experience and we also went to Robin Island where Nelson Mandela was held in prison for during his um during his sentence and did a little bit of touristy stuff but in yeah. the end it was a it was a great experience yeah absolutely we learned a lot and and I really can't wait to dig into what the dissemination portion of it will look like yeah. That's great. Well, thank, thank you. I know you got tons more you can talk about. Talk and, for hours. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of pictures because yeah. I've, seen, I've seen Kai's and I've seen Mike's pictures. But, uh, you know, I, I, I just for me, I, I think it's really great for you to share that experience. And and uh, and I look forward to, you know, what the committee comes up with in terms of sharing that information with the, you know, the, the leadership of our union and the activists in our union. Um, you know, I just just from what you've said today, you know, you can see the, the key role that, you know, education needs to play, uh, in, in continuing, continuing the important work. It's not these, these, uh, like you said, performative moments or performative acts. It's, it's like ongoing work and ongoing education and, and the work that needs to be done, um, you know, like with, with other folks, uh, coalition wise, but the, the key role, I think that unions always play and have historically played certainly in our countries, but it sounds like in South Africa as well, uh, the key role that unions play to lead that, to be able to workers, to be able to lead that kind of coalition and education and, 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 and build that kind of solidarity to make change. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting, uh, and, and really great that we're, we're trying to do that work. Um, you know, I, I know not necessarily nearly so, uh, bad is that's a, I gotta get a better word than bad, but it's not nearly so bad for us, but it still exists. Like the, like we're still a colonial country that's turned to capitalism and there's still all sorts of challenges, yeah, uh, the, the, particularly the, for racialized the, folks. The intergenerational trauma is similar to what the indigenous people mm -hmm. here have suffered. So yeah. yeah. And, and I, I think also it's, it's worth it to say that uh, in the context of this podcast, I know a, a lot of people are going to be watching. And so, you know, it is black history month. And so if you, um, want to find a way to support. I think part of what happens is we often reach out to the people around us that are racialized and put a lot of pressure on them in terms of educating us. So it would be great if, you know, folks pick up a book by a Black author and read it and educate themselves um, because that will start giving them some of the language and vocabulary around how to approach these conversations so that we can get a little bit more comfortable about an uncomfortable topic. For sure, yeah. Roxanne, you want to chime in about anything we're going to wrap up pretty quick so yeah no I mean I just just thank you so much to Rhea and Mike for I wish I was with you on that trip <laughs> I mean it sounds like it was pretty profound and I just I echo Scott's words about solidarity because honestly the whole time I was listening I was thinking about my own my own trip to South Africa um, that was very much focused on economics and lifting up uh, opportunities, um, economic opportunities for people in sub-Saharan Africa, um, given all the foreign investment that's happening on the continent right now, specifically in South Africa, and none of that is getting to the people. Um, but how grateful uh, our, our brothers and sisters in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa were, were to us from the U.S., um, for being there in solidarity with them, you know, making this demand for economic fairness and justice. Um, you know, for, for the people of Africa. And so um, I just, this was just incredible. So next trip, don't forget about me. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love myself. to have you with us. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so um, thank you all for being here, and we're going to wrap up our episode six of the Strongest Steel podcast. I'm looking at the right camera for those of you on uh, YouTube. Uh, but uh, if you've been listening to all of our uh, Strongest Steel podcasts, thank you. Keep listening. Uh, if you've got uh, other friends and family and other members of the union that you want to point in this direction, please do. Uh, we're, we're building, we're building our, uh, listenership and our viewership. And, uh, I keep saying it's going to be big lookout, uh, Joe Rogan, but, uh, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> maybe not that big, but, um, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this was really great. Uh, very informative. And I really appreciate all three of you being here, especially our esteemed, uh, guest, our vice president, um, Roxanne, I really, I appreciate, I know how busy you are and, and how much you have to do. And I appreciate you taking the time, um, oh, to be here. Uh, and so thanks again. Uh, please keep listening to the podcast. Uh, follow us, at, at uh, USW district three on, uh, Facebook, Twitter, X and uh, Instagram. And, uh, you can let Brett know if you got any complaints about this, or if you got any questions for us or topics to deal with on, uh, on future podcasts at, uh, D three comms at USW.ca. So it's like D and a three comms at USW.ca. Um, that's the complaints department and or questions and or uh, positive feedback if you got any or what you want to hear about on the podcast. So once again, thanks for listening. It's the Strongest Steel uh, podcast uh, and happy to have all three of you here and a uh, great episode. Thank you very much.